And everybody, this is Kat Scheibe. She's going to be reading the word for us this morning, all right? And this is like a marathon passage, okay? So just, she's doing a, a huge service this morning. Okay, I practiced this this morning, so. <laughs> yeah, here. Okay, so this is Nehemiah 13, 4 through 31. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission to come back and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the room and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God. With the, with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms, I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachar, and son of Mattaniah their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and, to, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kind of, kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gate in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, 
Half of their children spoke the language of, language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joedah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. This is the word of the Lord. Woo is right. Well, we're closing out. Uh, y'all going to have a seat. Uh, we're closing out our time in Nehemiah. That is the end of the book. And it's my joy and gift to invite somebody up here right now. Uh, if you don't know, we have been in a pastoral assistant pastor search process really since the summertime. And uh, we've had a prayer and advisory committee has been doing a lot of work on that. And a guy who, come on, come on up, Jeremy Camp, uh, everybody. Uh, yeah, Jeremy Kemp, uh, and Sarah, his wife, is right over here. Uh, here, come on. Um, here, this is you today, bro. And uh, I'm going to pray for him, uh, but asked him. They've been here this weekend uh, meeting with a lot of us and the, and the committee, and it's been a sweet weekend to get to know them and about their family and what he's been doing in Florida. Uh, so pray for him. Uh, I'm going to pray for him right now, but pray for him. This is uh, a weird thing to have to come preach to a bunch of people you don't know, right? So let's love him well uh, by leaning in, because uh, this is who God wants to give this message, right, to us. That's what we're here to do today, is to receive what the Lord has for us. So let me pray for him and for us. Lord, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for Jeremy. Um, pray right now, Lord, uh, that you just uh, give him what he needs to say to us uh, through his preparation and just through the leading of your Holy Spirit. Teach us, Lord. Uh, you are the great teacher. Uh, Loosen his tongue uh, where it needs to be loosened and bind it where it needs to be bound. But Holy Spirit, uh, please uh, do your thing. Uh, we love you. In your name, amen. Challenges right out the gate here, bro. This is like stand-up comedy hour now. Do you want this? Uh, no. Okay. Let's see if I can stretch it all the way over. I'm going to leave this on in hopes that maybe it'll work at some point. Is that okay? Okay. Awesome. Uh, boy, this does feel like comedy hour now, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> that's okay. Um, uh, I am uh, have been a church planner in the my past season of life, and so things going wrong and having to figure it out on the fly, this is just totally normal. This makes me feel like home. Thank you, actually, for this gift. Okay, 
Uh, here we go. I've also been told I have 25 minutes until I get the hook, so I'm going to get on it. Um, should we all just blame Hal for that? Oh, blame Dave for that. Okay. Um, okay. All right. So, anyways, uh, my name is Jeremy. Thank you um, for those of you who have given some of your weekend uh, to hang with my wife, Sarah, and I. It really has been a privilege. Uh, and this, this culture uh, and this movement that God is doing, um, I was just telling, um, uh, I was telling somebody else that there is a, there's a sweetness and a uniqueness and a gospel shape to what's happening here, not just in the organism of the people, but also in the organization. Uh, and that is just not something that you see all the time. And, uh, and so I'm thankful for what God's doing among you and for your faithfulness to walk and live in hard ways, in cruciform ways, uh, that is where uh, the spirit works. So anyways, we, um, I don't unfortunately have any visual aids today. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast over the past number of months, uh, and have had tons of fun hearing the little clinking of cymbals in the background, and the, the trumpet week was particularly fun. Uh, I'm looking forward, Dave, like when, you know, you may get to like Moses in the burning bush, or like uh, Jesus walking on the water, or maybe when Peter cuts off the guy's ear. Those could be fun to do some things with. The, if you notice, though, where... Can I pull it away yet? Nope. Okay. Um, if you notice what what was just read, by the way, great job reading and the hard names and everything, super duper. I'm glad you did that, not me. What you see happening here, maybe if there was a visual image, it would be the image of the whooping stick, because Nehemiah brings it today. Did you did you notice that that every everything is going wrong, not going right, and we're at the very end of the book. This does not seem like the way that the book of Nehemiah should end. And so Nehemiah brings his whooping stick. What started out as we close out this series, maybe just to summarize for a minute, what, what started out as a comfy ruler who was from Jerusalem, had Jewish roots, but now is in this exiled land, but is doing pretty okay for himself, gets this burden to go back and rebuild his homeland. And what we've been walking through is this rebuilding process if you've been with us from the beginning. A rebuilt city, a rebuilt worship, uh, sort of a rebuilt people that had been totally desecrated for their own rebellion and sin. God had now graciously brought them back together. Kind of like this mic was just brought back together, <laughs> praise the Lord, came out of exile. Um, and over the past few weeks where we've been has been uh, Ezra reads the law, worship, jubilation, everybody's excited, and they, they say things that the Israelites, God's people, always say, yes, we hear your law, we will do what you say, praise the Lord. What happens in our passage? Almost from the garden to Sinai, to the crossing of the Red Sea and the following wilderness after that, over and over and over again, God's people say, yes, we will do it. And then time and time again, they just blow it. Do you find yourself there this morning? 
Maybe there are some of you who are on that sort of mountaintop with the Lord. You're following hard after him, and he's blessing you, and things seem to just be falling in place and going right. There's nothing wrong with that. But there are times coming, and Jesus has said that even everybody that's bearing fruit, he's going to prune those so that they bear more fruit. So wherever you are today, if you're in the pit or if you're on the mountaintop, the closing of the book of Nehemiah has something to teach us as fellow pilgrims, as fellow exiles who he is putting back together for a, a perfect and good and true city and future that we have coming to us. The book should have ended there with the, and they lived happily ever after, and the credits rolled, and then everything was fine, but that's not where it ends. So here we find ourselves. What, what the book of Nehemiah then has to tell us in this concluding chapter is, and maybe you expected, you know, you see, we don't have the, the thing up right now, but come let us rebuild. Feels very triumphal. And so maybe you came into this series, coming back from COVID and, and thought, this is going to be the time. Creve Hall is going to step up and do amazing things for the Lord. But do you notice how the chapter ends? It does not end with the triumph of God's people. It ends with God, we need you. If anything is going to happen of value, of lasting, eternal value, it's going to come from your hands and not mine. That's what the book of Nehemiah has to tell us. And that's what we're going to investigate a little bit more today. The goal then, what we do see reflected in chapter 13 is that there should be a shape to God's people. And that shape, to put it in a definition could look like this, a countercultural community that witnesses to the reality of God in the world. That is the shape that should be found amongst God's people, amongst God's collected people, the church. But again, we find ourselves in all kinds of ways living just like everybody else around us, just like our neighbors, just like our coworkers, just like our friends who don't know Jesus from Adam. So what we're going to do very quickly as we look through these two passages is see two things. And we're going to try to walk straight through, but briefly. Uh, the first is we're going to look at what countercultural community isn't, but should be. And then secondly, we're going to look at what is the fuel for a truly countercultural community that witnesses that God is real, and he is here, and he is at work, and he is not, it is not up to me to bring his kingdom, but his, his kingdom is coming, and I'm just trying to get on the train. That's what we're going to walk through. So uh, first, to summarize what is happening in chapter 13 and, and what picture God is describing and portraying of what his people should look like, what we, the church, should look like. A countercultural community lives the reality of God and his real presence and his real value and his real worth in every aspect of their life. It seeps down from the heavens into every crevice and crack of our lives. And so your worship life, your work life, your home life, those are the three things that we're going to kind of break down and walk through today should all be very influenced that God is real and he is at work and you are following him. Abraham Kuyper says, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of all existence, all our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Where in your life this morning might he be crying mine and you are also crying 
no mine. There could be all kinds of ways, but let's look through three. First, worship. So we jump out of the gate, and there's this whole thing going on that is, is sort of confusing to understand what exactly is happening. So verses 4 through 14 describes this worship issue. The worship issue, um, to set this whole thing up, Nehemiah is gone, and he kind of he says it somewhere in the middle. This thing was happening, but I wasn't there. Uh, Nehemiah had spent 12 years in Jerusalem, and then, because he had to go back to art, as Dave has lovingly referred to him before, he goes back to Persia to do his actual job that he was let out of for 12 years to go and do this thing, and he had to go report back. While he's gone, in the very same way, as you're reading this in your head, in my head as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, Moses goes up the mountain, God's people at the bottom of the mountain should be waiting on him to come back down from a word with a word from the Lord, and instead, what do they do? They make themselves a nice golden calf and worship it because that thing up there is way too scary and he's taken way too long. And in the same way, Nehemiah leaves and God's people left to themselves do what God's people left to themselves do. They go bonkers. What's happening here? So Tobiah, which you may recognize him, he's an enemy of Jerusalem. He does not like the walls being uh, going up. He's conspired to try to harm, if not totally kill and take out uh, Nehemiah, the leader of this movement. And essentially what happens in Nashville terms is he just scored himself a sweet downtown apartment. And But there's a cost to this sweet downtown apartment, and he finds it in the temple. I mean, you know, he just has to, he needed another place to go and hang with all his buds. And so uh, in this room that he either found vacant or pushed whatever was in the room out and moved himself in, maybe like some of us have done as we've planted churches, shoved stuff out of closets and said, I think maybe we can fit our own stuff in here. Um, Tobiah pushes in and he sets up this little place for himself, but it's in the temple. And he is not of anyone who should be, he's not a priest, he's not a Levite, he's, he's not a cupbearer, he's, he's not anybody who should be of the, the authority to do that, and yet he pushes in and he does it. Why is the room vacant? Or we're not sure exactly which one happened first, but let's say the room was vacant and he moved in. What is that room for? It says, grain offerings, frankincense, vessels, and tithes. So the, the things of worship, like the soundboard and uh, the, the, you know, the music stand and whatever this thing is, they, they were not there. And so what, if, if we showed up and none of this stuff was here, it'd be really, if there were no chairs, that'd be a really uncomfortable worship service. And so the, it's, it's drawing a picture of what is going on here. Because what's the other thing? If there's no tithes, then it, it goes on to say, then there's no priests, and there's no Levites, and there's no worshipers, worship leaders, musicians. All of these things, what happens with no priests, no Levites, no worship leaders? There's no worship. So this is a worship issue that is happening. Worship has ceased in Jerusalem. Remember, everything that they did when they worshiped God, when they confessed their sins just a few chapters ago and said, praise the Lord, oh, we're so glad, we're back, we're better than ever, it's going to be great. Just a few chapters later, there they go again. Jerusalem had not made space for worship. And maybe to bring this into our living rooms today, 
do you make space for worship? What does your worship life look like on a, on a weekly basis? Every Sunday? Every small group meeting? Every time you put a check in the basket? Uh, every time you crack open the Bible or don't? Or pray or don't? Every morning? Or not? We have these opportunities, these gaps in our life that are meant to be filled with reminders of who we are and whose we are. And oftentimes, though, we fill those gaps with all kinds of other things, and we busy those things up, and we crowd the true God who is out, and we build something in our own image that may for a little while make us feel a little bit better instead. Those of you who are members, if you remember standing up here and saying yes to this vow, do you promise to support the worship and work of the church to the best of your ability? Have you done that? It's going to be hard to reflect with these vows that we have said, just like these vows that God's people have said long ago. We continue to make these vows, and we continue to break them. But Hebrews calls into, into mind, why do we worship? Like, why do we wake up every morning and call ourselves back to the reality of the truth that really is and the God who really is? Why do we show up to this place every week? Because Hebrews 10 says, let us Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Why? Encouraging one another. All the more as you say the day, see the day drawing near. We can say it this way. Every time we show up to this room, really every time we wake up every day, we are gospel amnesiacs. We forget everything that's really true. Watch your heart when you wake up and get in the shower and go about your day. What's the first thing? I've, I'm finding myself right now, the first thought in my head is usually the worst thing that's going on in my life. Is that true? If that's true, then that is going to be the thing that rules how you live out that day. And if you don't reset yourself, if you don't allow the Lord to reset you by His Spirit in real time in the Scriptures and in talking back to Him in prayer, then there's going to be these gaps that are going to get filled in with all kinds of of fake, false things that will then lead you to live in all kinds of fake, false, untrue ways. But for those who show up every Sunday, even when you don't want to, and for those who show up to the Lord in prayer and scripture reading every morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you do that, it begins to create a counterculture of people, a counterculture of people who view all of life as world and who view all of the world as their fathers. This is my father's world. But for all of us who don't, and that is all of us, then when worship goes haywire, then everything else begins to go haywire under it. And so we see two other things that Nehemiah hits on that go haywire. Verse 15 through 22, work is the second thing that goes haywire. Because if you forget God, if you wake up every morning and forget that God is in charge of your work day that you're about to have, or your school day kids that you're about to have, and your homework and your tests, or whatever's going on in your life, then what, what do you fill that gap in with? I'm in charge. If it's to be, it's up to me. And so if that's the truth and the, the reality that you're living out of, who has time to rest? Who has time to take a break? Because if I'm in charge then I got to get going. The next thing that Nehemiah finds is Sabbath breaking. There is a rhythm of work and rest that we find all throughout the scriptures 
The fourth commandment calls it into being. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath day holy. Jesus brings it into the New Testament in Mark 2 and says, this, guys, the Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for the Sabbath. You're not a servant to it. It's a gift to you, not something you do for me. That was God, not me saying that. Um, there's this rhythm of work and rest all the way back to creation. And it's built into the fabric of who we are. You can look at all the studies that say that people who don't stop break down. Over, they mentally break down. They physically break. You're not made to go and go and go and go. We are built differently than that. Work was not made to be our identity. Maybe some of you sway more to the, the workaholism side of things. Um, or as Homer Simpson calls it, to be addicted to workahol. Um, I think it was Rageahol, actually, but that was a funny episode. Or, or maybe it's more like, I'm just working to get a paycheck just so I can go have fun with my buddies. And that's more like the Proverbs uh, talk about the sluggard. It, you may sway more towards one or the other of those, but to understand the Sabbath means that you understand that there's six days of hard work. It is good to do hard work, but there's also one day of hard stop. And so do you have a rhythm in your life where you're acknowledging, I am not the center of my universe? God is. I am not in charge of my ultimate flourishing and success. God is. I am not in charge of keeping the world spinning. God is. Doing that rhythm over and over and over again collectively as a community creates a counterculture of both hard workers and hard stoppers. I, I'm working at a golf course right now, and uh, there is, you know, this is my first non-church non job that I've ever had since I, I came into ministry right after college. And it's the kind of thing where there is a dominant culture there when I walk in. And that dominant culture is one of profanity, uh, it's one of degradation of women, it's one of uh, just working just as hard as you can to sort of skate by under the boss's guise. And in that moment, I've struggled to know how to be, how do I live faithfully to Jesus, but also in the world and not of it? it it's not always cut and dry. Many of us are in professions where these places, how to live as a Christian in the workplace is not cut and dry. And so I, I feel for you. And I don't have any great answers of exactly how to always work that out. But especially when you're like me, and the first week that I was there, I ran a golf cart into the break room, uh, and I was asked while I was edging around a garden bed, have you ever edged before? Um, it's hard to be a counterculture when you're not very good at what you're doing. Um, but just being present in your workplace, just, just being a little bit different than those around you, being driven a little bit differently than those around you, working and resting a little bit different, trusting in the Lord, holding back your tongue in some ways, not going into the gossip or whatever it is that the dominant culture is doing does begin to create a little bit of a question in people's minds to say, what's going on? Is there there's something more going on to this person that maybe I want to know about? Which is when you can be ready to have an answer for the hope that is in you when you're asked. You don't force it, but where are you as you do that? Where, where are you in your rhythms of work and rest? Where is your work marked by the reality of God in it? Do you work hard? Do you rest harder? The final thing uh, that we see breaking down here is the home. 
Verses 23 through 29 describe the breakdown in the home. When you forget the God who is committed to you, then those that you are committed to, those relationships can just be a lot more about you and a lot less about the commitment that you've made. So what we see happening in the passage is intermarriage. Uh, and we don't have time to totally go into all that, but essentially what's happening is that it's, it's the same thing as happens in the New Testament where there's, hey, don't be unequally yoked. Christian believer, marry believer, Christian marry Christian. Be careful because if there is an unequal yoke in your household, that begins to flow down into your progeny, into your children. And they begin to be discipled in the ways of the world way more than they're discipled in the ways of the kingdom. And so uh, there's this commitment to marriage that then can become just optional. It's as long as I'm feeling okay about it, then, you know, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. But the minute that I feel like maybe I like somebody else better, I'm out. So Israel started marrying foreign women and divorcing their God-fearing spouses, and their children began to be discipled much more by the world than by Yahweh. Uh, there's a really neat image uh, by a guy named Pete Scazzaro that I know some of you are going through some of his emotionally healthy uh, relationship curriculum right now. And he describes it like this. You actually, every one of us who is married, leads out of our marriage. In a Christian marriage, you are so at one with that other person that there is, you don't do anything alone. Even when you are alone, there's always a consideration for this other person. And as you lead out that way, that is a counterculture. That is different than you see anywhere else in the world. And there is something about that that Ephesians 5 talks about, that there is a reflection between Christ and the church in a mysterious way for those of you that are married. And the watching world looks at that and goes, how do you do that? And how do I struggle so bad with that? Not only that, uh, this intermarriage thing also brings an opportunity to say, I've been told as often as you can say, don't commit adultery, say it. So here we go. Don't commit adultery. Uh, if lust is also the heart root of adultery, then you know you don't have to go very far to bring a foreign woman or man into your marriage. You know you don't have to travel worlds to do that. In sickness and health, in plenty and want, in joy and sorrow, as long as you both shall live, is the vow that you've made. Kids, uh, if you've got kids... Are you first thinking about as you're waking up every morning and carting them around to all the things that they do, are you thinking primarily about growing them up in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord? Or are you thinking about the sports? Are you thinking about the grades? Are you thinking about minimizing suffering and maximizing achievement as your main goal for your kids? It is very natural for us to flow into that. I've got three of them. I do it all the time. Especially in the rat race. There's so much rat race when you got kids and you're this way to that way to this way to that way. If you, those of you who have baptized children up here said this, do you now undeservedly dedicate your child to God? Promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him or her a godly example, that you will pray for him or her, teach him or her the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, do you? That's the vow you've taken. And then congregationally, you took the vow after that that said, will all of us together work together to make that a reality? Yes, we will. Vows made. Perhaps vows broken. 
but there's a call in these that there is a good life on the other side of these that God is calling you into. If you're a kid, kids, are you allowing yourself to be discipled? Do you love when your parents sit you down around the dinner table with a Bible in the center? Or do you make it a nightmare? It, it goes both ways. Kids, are you, are you walking in the ways of the Lord and allowing yourself to be drawn into that by your parents who have walked further than you? Singles, you can't get away. Those of you who are single, uh, are you living as a counterculture? Is the way that you're living in your singleness reflective of Paul's admonition that this is a gift that you have? You can serve the Lord in all kinds of amazing ways. Or is it just this bitterness, this hardness, or this sadness and downness that you're not like everybody else? There's all kinds of ways that we can live, as James 1.27 says, to keep yourself unstained from the world. And that goes for the church, and that goes for the workplace, and that goes for the home and the marriage and the children or the friendships that we find in that. And all of these areas, God is calling us then to be this countercultural community that witnesses to the reality of God in the world. But again, like the book ends, the book really, praise the Lord that it ends this way. It couldn't have ended any better. This is good news for us, even though you might not see it yet. I was sitting looking over my sermon. We're staying at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel, and there's always somebody from like, I don't know, 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. who's playing some cover song on an acoustic guitar. Most of them are pretty good. Um, I guess it is Nashville. And there was a guy in the Cascade Atrium who was playing one of my favorite songs uh, by a guy named Chris Stapleton, Broken Halos. And, um, and I say that like that's some... But, you know, somebody in this room probably produced that. <laughs> so you're not wowed by that like I am. But I'm not from here, so I'm going to be wowed by it. Um, and this is the words. Seen my share of broken halos, folded wings that used to fly. They've all gone wherever they go. Broken halos that used to shine. When we think of all the vows that we've made, when we think of all the vows that we have broken, we carry around all kinds of just broken halos. They maybe used to shine for a minute. There was that, that was initial desire that, yes, Lord, we will follow you. And then the next morning you wake up and you just follow the, the, the wounds in your heart instead of the goodness of God. And we all do it. When we think about all of those things, when we've got our share of broken halos in the church, our share of broken halos in the, our work world, the share of broken halos at home, the good news of Nehemiah. Do you know, so Nehemiah is kind of, you know, in like maybe the first third of the Bible in the way that it falls here. Do you know where the, chronologically, anybody ever read the Bible chronologically? Do you know where the book of Nehemiah falls? This is where the good news part comes in. The book of Nehemiah and the book of Malachi, uh, who is a prophet, they both are around the same time. Guess what happens after that? There's 400 years silence, of waiting, of hoping, of longing. Come, come Messiah, come Messiah, come Messiah. And what do we hear? Breaking in, but the gospel of Luke, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The whole trajectory of the Old Testament 
concluding in the book of Nehemiah, has been pointing towards him. It's been pointing towards our great need as the book of Nehemiah ends, as we reflect on our own. And it has been pointing to the great sufficiency of the Lord Jesus for us, a Savior of sinners of which we are the chief. So Nehemiah ends with Israel's failure, with Nehemiah's frustration, and with a prayer. Do you notice the refrain all the way through? Every time Nehemiah finds something broken, what does he say? He doesn't say, darn it, I'm going to do this better than I did the first time. What does he say? Remember me, O Lord. Remember me, O Lord. Remember me, O Lord, for good. And I can't help but think of on the day that Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's a thief to his left and a murderer to his right and the thief looks at him and he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And each one of us today, the thieves that we are, can look at him and say, I've blown it. Will you remember me? Help. I can't do this alone. I can't do this without you. Uh, I was reminded of this quote um, through a conversation that I had this weekend. This is from Brendan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel, and then we'll close up. He says this, Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless numbers of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hand, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had had an abortion and is haunted by the guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman, addicted to being liked, who never challenges people from the pulpit or longs for conditional love. There they are. There we are. We are the multitude who wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, beset by trials, wearied, uh, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung faith. John Calvin defines faith as believing in the benevolence of the divine for you. Another way to say that is, do you believe that God is good? Not just to anybody, to you. And if so, how does that change your life? How does that change your home? How does that change your work? How does that change your worship? To believe that God is good, not just in general, but to you, begins to bring his reality by his spirit's power in technicolor in your life. And then everything in a certain way begins to sparkle in a new way as you see this life is not what I thought it was. I had the blinders on again. I was doing that thing again. And the spirit has opened my eyes. And he's he's shown me yet again just what a gift life is. And every part of it, ultimately, he cries, mine, including us. He wants us, and he calls us to himself. And then the more that we see his grace worked out in our life by faith, we can begin to live the way he's called us to in Nehemiah 13 as a countercultural community that witnesses the reality of God and all the very normal things of life and invites others to join into the same reality. God, remember us. Remember Creve Hall. Let's pray.
So, Father, we need you. This, this book uh, has been such a journey and has not concluded maybe like we thought it would. In that deep, blank, dark space of 400 years of silence between the ending of Nehemiah and the coming of Jesus, that's where we find ourselves all the time. We're waiting for you in the dark. And so whatever darkness we might be collectively together as a church body and what, as we sit in our seats, might be the darknesses that we face where we just don't know. We don't know what you're going to do. We don't know where you're going to take us. But in those dark spots, would light break through? Would angels, in a sense, as we move into a season of Advent, uh, would the angels begin to break in and sing glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth? To all who love him. So we love you. And we pray that by your Spirit's power, in the very ordinary ways and means of grace that we have, would you shape us to love you more? Forgive us. Remember us.